podcast has bad words. <laughs> All right, before we dive into this episode, the minimalists want to help you declutter your glowing screen. So head on over to theminimalists.com slash wallpapers to download any of our free minimalist wallpapers, including our love people use things wallpaper for your smartphone or computer. Enjoy. Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus, and together we are the Minimalists. Today, we're going to talk about several modern crises. We're going to talk about depression, loneliness, addiction, connection, belonging, and meaning. With today's guest, Johan Hari is here. <laughs> you go my name right. <laughs> After the fourth introduction, we finally got his name right. Uh, yeah, so, uh, Johan, uh, Johan, thank you for joining us today. Um, Man, I want to talk to you about both your books. Uh, two books, Chasing the Scream, you have Lost Connections is your newest book. We're going to get into those, but this is a listener-driven show, so I thought maybe we could start with some questions. Our, sure. fir- our first question today is from Brian in Connecticut. Hi, guys. My name is Brian Kelsey, and I'm from Colchester, Connecticut. I've been searching for a way to become more happier, but at the same time, more fulfilled, and live a life of meaning and being around people and positive influence like my family and friends. I was actually recommended this podcast by somebody I trust, and I found myself not being able to stop listening. I now spend most of my time listening to this podcast more than being trapped in the Bermuda Triangle of uh, social media apps like Instagram, Snapchat, and Facebook, and being more cognitive and aware of what I'm doing. I was wondering what you would recommend a 20-year-old like myself and ways to continue enhancing my life and working towards a meaningful lifestyle. Johan, the the first thing I I thought about was something from your most recent book, Lost Connections. I'll hold it up here for the folks watching on, on YouTube. So I think it's page 88. You talk about, well, we check our phones every six minutes. Mm. And so that's a sort of pacifier, right? 42% of us never turn off our phones, which is a red flag. But then there is uh, this quick passage here. I thought a lot about this, about the depression or anxiety preceded uh, preceded the compulsive internet use for everyone here. So everyone here, uh, the context of this is you are at a sort of rehab for video gamers. Was that right? Is that the way to describe it? Internet addicts. So it's interesting because the the, the crisis you'll call a, the kind of problem that led your caller to your podcast is in a way the 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 problem that led me to to do the to do go on this three-year journey all over the world to try to get the answers for my book because there were these two mysteries that were really hanging over me right the first mystery is i'm 40 years old and all throughout my life depression and anxiety have increased here in the united states and across the western world right Mm -hmm. year after year and i wanted to understand well why Right? Why is this happening to so many of us? Why? Well, clearly we have a Prozac deficiency. <laughs> <laughs> We're not taking we can, enough antidepressants. We can come back to that question. But the, <laughs> the, the second mystery, very related to what you're saying is, it was a more personal one, which is when I was a teenager, so a little bit younger than your caller, not that much younger. Um, I remember going to my doctor 
but explaining that I had this feeling like pain was leaking out of me, right? I didn't understand it. I had exactly that kind of hollow feeling that your caller has. Um, and my doctor told me a story that I now realize wasn't totally wrong, but was really oversimplified. Um, my doctor said, well, we know why people get like this. Doctor, so that's what you said. Some people just naturally have a, a chemical imbalance in their brains. Mm. Just happens to some people. You're clearly one of them. All we need to do is give you some drugs and you're going to be fine. And I started taking a, a chemical antidepressant called Paxil. And I felt significantly better at first. But then not long afterwards, this feeling of pain started to come back. So I went back. I was given higher and higher doses until for 13 years, I was taking the maximum possible dose that you're allowed to take. Mm. And while I got some relief, I still essentially felt like shit, right? Mm. Um, and, and at the end of it, I started asking myself, well, what's going on here? Because according to the story our culture is telling, I'm doing everything that you're meant to do. Mm-hmm. And yet it's not working for me. So I ended up going on this big journey all over the world. I traveled over 30,000 miles. I wanted to interview the the leading experts in the world about what causes depression and anxiety. And people with very different perspectives from, you know, uh, uh, an Amish village in Indiana, because the Amish have very low levels of depression. We can talk about why. I think it's very related to a lot of your a lot of your themes to a, a lab in Baltimore where they're giving people psychedelics to see if that helped to a, a city in Brazil that banned advertising to see if that would make people feel better and I, and I learned uh, Sao Paulo exactly okay. hmm. and, I, and I learned a, a massive amount but the, the core of what I learned is the scientific evidence for nine different causes of depression and anxiety that we know about so far there'll be others we don't mm-hmm. know about yet uh, two of them are indeed in our biology um, and it's important to talk about them and I'm sure we will but most of the factors that cause depression and anxiety are not in our biology. They're factors in the way we live. Mm. And once you understand them, that opens up a very different set of solutions. And I think I think it's interesting with, with this caller, I think it's what I'll, I'd, tell, I'd start by telling about one of these causes. I think the fact that he's been drawn to your podcast suggests to me this might be one that, that would connect with him, although maybe it wouldn't. And there are clearly many others that we can get to. So, and I found this, I found this quite challenging for several reasons. So everyone knows junk food has taken over our diets and made mm. us physically sick, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I don't say this with any sense of superiority. One of the great low points of my life was on on Christmas Eve 2009, I went to my local KFC at lunchtime uh, in East London and I, and I, and I went in. I remember and the story. It's so, it was so book. awful. It's so good. The guy, the guy behind the counter, I said my, my standard order, which is so disgusting, I'm not going to repeat it to you. And the guy behind the counter said, oh, yeah, and I'm really glad you're here. Wait a minute. And, I'm like, and, he, and he went off behind where they fry the chicken and everything. And he came back with the other staff member who was on and a fucking massive Christmas card in which they'd written to our best customer. Oh and everyone who worked in this KFC had written like personal messages to me with little in-jokes. Oh, and wow. my clogged heart sank. And I was like, Jesus, this is... I have to stop coming in. Anyway, I did stop going there. That actually, that card was the single greatest weight loss device I've ever had in my life. But um, I, I remember the line in the book is uh, materialism is KFC for the soul. Well, mm. the, exactly, just, exactly. Just like junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick, mm-hmm. a kind of junk values have taken over our minds and made us mentally sick. So for thousands of years, philosophers have said, if you think life is about money and status and possessions, you're going to feel like shit, right? Mm. That's not an exact quote from Schopenhauer, but that is the gist of what he said, right? But yeah, I believe we- that was Seneca. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but weirdly, 
nobody had actually <clears throat> scientifically investigated this until a guy you guys should totally talk with, an incredible man named Professor Tim Casser, who's at Knox College in Illinois, who I spent a lot of time interviewing and, and went to see. Um, and Professor Casser began this research about 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 25 years ago, and it was it was already known at that time that human beings have basically two kinds of motivation. You can divide our motives into two types, and everyone is a mixture of both, right? So there are, um, uh, what best way to explain it? Imagine you play the piano. If you play the piano in the morning because you love it and it gives you joy, that's what's called an intrinsic motive to play the piano, mm -hmm. right? You're not doing it to get anything out of it. You're doing it because that moment is meaningful to you. You love it, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, now imagine you play the piano not because you love it, but, I don't know, in a dive bar that you hate to pay the rent or because your parents are massively pressuring you, mm. you know, because that's their dream. Right. Or, I don't know, to post the clips on Instagram to get likes, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. That would be an what's called an extrinsic reason to play the piano. You're not doing it because that experience gives you joy. You're doing it to get something out of it further down the line. Mm. And obviously, to be a human being, you've got to be both, right? Yeah, sure. Obviously. But Professor Casser's research discovered loads of really interesting things about this firstly well to me the most important is he showed that the more your life is dominated by these extrinsic values by doing things not because they're meaningful to you but to get something out of it like money or status or likes um the more likely you are to become depressed and anxious by a really quite significant amount right mm. do I we know why yeah, so there's there's many reasons, um, and it's it's why I I, I to draw that analogy with junk food, right? Just like um, junk food, like everyone needs food, and everyone needs a value system to guide them through life, mm -hmm. and just like junk food appeals to the parts of us evolved that to need food and nutrition, but actually hijacks that, poisons us, makes us fat and sick, um, in a similar way. These extrinsic values, which I think are analogous to junk food, if they go too far, they're a kind of junk, I call them junk values. Right. Um, if, if they dominate, they appeal to the part of us that are looking for guides through life, and yet they hijack that part of us and actually take us, they train us to seek happiness in all the wrong places. And there's, there's many reasons why... Um, why extrinsic values living in a way that's dominated by junk values make us feel so bad and professor Casser goes through many examples that i give in 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 the book I'll give you an example of one this might sound like a bit of a cheap thing to say uh, i don't mean it as a cheap dig at this person so in 2009 melania trump went to speak at nyu i can't imagine why it was before the political thing and a student asked her um would you have married Donald Trump if he wasn't rich? And she said, do you think he would have married me if I wasn't beautiful? Mm. Now you can see what that reveals about the nature of a relationship that's dominated by junk values. Mm. What does it reveal? Melania Trump knows if she got fat, if she lost her looks in some other way, she'd be out. Mm. And Donald Trump knows if he lost his money and status and power, his wife would be out the door, right? Mm -hmm. now. The Trumps are a very extreme example for all sorts of obvious reasons. Sure. But we've all become more like the Trumps. So one of the other things Tim Casser showed that's really important is that as a society, as a culture, all throughout, I think we're all about the same age, all throughout our lifetimes, um, 
we've become much more driven by these extrinsic junk values. They go up year after year after year um, under the weight of advertising and Instagram and everything like them. Mm. So there are many reasons why extrinsic values make us feel worse. So one is they make your relationships more insecure, more contingent on on things. You can see how that would make you less happy. Another example is related to, uh, I think, a a deeper and more important thing, which is... um, Everyone knows that they have natural physical needs, obviously. You need food, you need water, you need shelter, you need clean air. If I took those things away from you, you'd you'd both be in real trouble real fast. But there's equally strong evidence that all human beings have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. Mm -hmm. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You feel you've got a future that makes sense. And this culture we built is good at lots of things. I'm glad to be alive today, but we've been getting less and less good at meeting these deep underlying psychological needs. And one of the problems with these junk values is they don't meet your deeper needs. Mm-hmm. It, you know, you don't feel you belong just because you got a thousand retweets. You don't feel seen and valued uh, because you've got loads of money in the bank, right? You don't feel your life has meaning and purpose because someone famous tweeted about you, right? So what 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 junk values do and we you know we live in a machinery from the moment we're born that gets us to structure our lives by chasing these junk values right yeah. i mean and, and more 18 month old children in the united states know what the mcdonald's m means than know their own last name mm. so from the moment you're born you are immersed in this machinery right mm. the t trains you if you don't feel good, we've got a solution for that. Treat yourself, go shopping, buy stuff. That's that's the primary script we're given for how to feel better. We're trained to, to interpret our behavior and think about our goals in this way. Um, and that leads us in a path, you know, and in some ways, it, it, I found this quite challenging. I remember talking to Professor Casa and thinking, it's a cliche to say to people, right? None of you are going to lie on your deathbed and think about all the likes you got on Instagram and all the shoes you bought. You're going to think about moments of love and meaning and connection in your life. Um, And I thought, isn't this almost banal? But then Professor Casser said to me, yeah, at some level we know these things, but as he put it to me, we live in a machine that is designed to get us to neglect what is important about life. Mm. I had to really think about that. We live in a machine that's designed to get us to neglect what's important about life. Um, and, And so we have this strange conflict where at some level... We know these insights. We know them to the point where they are banal cliches. And yet, we live in a machine that gets us to live in a very different, very different way. So the rediscovery of those intrinsic values is the single most important thing I would recommend to to your caller. Think about, um, and and Professor Kasser did a really interesting experiment with a wonderful guy named Nathan Dungan, exactly about this. It's really simple. I really urge people. Now, there's lots of big structural things we need to do to deal with junk values like massively regulate advertising. I would actually ban a lot of advertising. There's lots of things we can do. We can talk about the structural things, but in terms of advice for this, and I would urge this individual caller to fight for that. But I would also talk about things that he can do in his own life, mm-hmm. um, a more individual level or group level. So Professor Kasser and, and Nathan Dungan did this really interesting experiment that your caller can, can try himself. So uh, it began because Nathan Dungan is a financial advisor in Minneapolis. So his job is to advise people on budgeting, like personal household budgeting. And he got a call from a school. It's a kind of middle-class school. It's not fancy, but it's not poor. Um, And they said, well, you come in because we've got a real problem here. 
um, we, our kids, our teen, these are teenagers, our teenagers are just demanding really expensive consumer goods like Nike sneakers or the latest iPhone. And if they don't get it, they go apeshit, right? Yeah. And their parents often can't afford it. It's causing a load of stress and hassle at the school and with the, in, at the home. Could you come in and explain budgeting to these kids, right? So he comes in and does his normal thing, which is explaining budgeting. And quite quickly he realizes these kids don't give a shit about budgeting. Something else is going on here, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so he then teamed up with, with Professor Kasser to do this experiment to see if they could deal with the underlying problem, which was precisely these kids have been primed to think they needed things that no you know that no sensible person needs um so it's a really simple experiment what they did is they they get uh, teenagers and their parents to come to groups over a period of months and the first session they just ask them they say to them give them a piece of paper and they say discuss this with your family we want you to write down things you've got to have right no just what you've got to have not things what you got to have, right? Um, and so obviously everyone at first puts things like shelter, food, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But quite quickly, people would put, I need Nike sneakers. Right. Uh, or the parents would go, I need some, name some fancy car or whatever. Um, and then they'd, the people leading the group would say, okay, well, let's talk about how your life would be different if you got these things. How would you feel? Why do you want them? And And interestingly, very few people named the actual like, function of the thing they wanted right so the people who wanted nike sneakers didn't say oh, i'm a basketball player and i want to be able to jump higher the people who wanted the fast car didn't go oh i'm a surgeon i need to be able to get really quickly to the hospital right mm -hmm. they said things like people will envy me i'll feel i belong right these were and this wasn't some buried insight it was the first thing people said mm -hmm. um it doesn't take long to get people to say that out loud before you go well why do you think having a little is it blue? Blue tick on your sneakers is going to mean that you're a person who deserves to belong and be recognized, right? Yeah. Mm. Um, you begin to pick that apart. Everyone likes to think they're smarter than advertising, but you realize the, these impressions have been invented by advertising. They've been created by a very sophisticated machinery to make you think you'll have that feeling if you get this object. But of course you don't. We've right. all had that experience of buying something expensive, a brief rush, you get home and then you feel like shit again, right? Yeah. Um, so initially it was about deconstructing those junk values. And then more importantly, because if you take away someone's value, you've got to give them a better value system, right? Meaningful or, values. Exactly, you've got to activate the more meaningful values in their life. They already have them at some level, everyone does. But right. um, the, the so, so then they would have sessions where they talk about, okay, let's talk about moments when you have actually ha experienced meaning and connection in your life. And everyone can think of something and lots of people know different things. Some people it was, you know, um, playing music, running, writing, taking their kids to the beach, a whole range of things. And and the group was designed to get people to ask, okay, how could you build more of your life around pursuing these meaningful values and less around chasing these junk values? And just having these conversations, we don't, I mean, your podcast is a great example of these, these conversations. We don't have these conversations very often in this culture. Just checking in and having these conversations uh, a bit like a kind of Alcoholics Anonymous for consumerism, um, led to a measurable and significant shift in people's values away from these depression-generating junk values to more meaningful values. So what I would recommend to your caller in Colchester is get a group. It's very hard to do this on your own as an isolated individual. Mm -hmm. Get a group of your friends together. 
have these meetings once every two weeks, once a month. Talk about the things you actually find meaningful in your lives. Talk about the temptation of junk values because that temptation is there for all of us, right? Mm -hmm. In this culture, you are being, you know, invaded by those messages all the time. Yeah, we, we, Ryan and I often call them um, imaginary values. So we, we, we delineate there's four types of values. People want to go back, listen to episode 68 or 69 about values um, and where we dive deep into the four different types of values that, that we often talk about. And there are these imaginary values or what you would call junk values. And then there are like minor values. And I think quite often we get confused and it's turned upside down where it is the Nikes are going to make me, uh, in, uh, make other people envy me, or it's going to be the, you know, back in my corporate days, I had two Lexuses. Like, well, why? Was one Lexus not enough? Uh, uh, by the way, a Lexus is just a fancy Toyota anyway. Was a Toyota not enough? Uh, Ryan and I just had a conversation with uh, uh, Pete Buttigieg uh, about... Uh, you know, I love him. Yeah, we're, yeah. Uh, Is he nice in the flesh? Oh, he's great. Yeah, he's a yeah, really good dude. Genuine dude. Yeah. Um, and anyway, we, we were talking to him. We, Ryan and I are from Dayton, Ohio, which in 2017 was the overdose capital of America. You know, 50,000 overdoses uh, that year. Um, many, many deaths as well. And he, the thing he talked about is, you know, there's a crisis of belonging there. It's funny. I feel like he was quoting you <laughs> like when we were interviewing him. Several people have said to me that I think him and Marianne Williamson have read my book yeah. because they keep saying things that are very similar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but it's great. Like you're influencing some people who, who need to be influenced in this way and ha- kind of have that perspective. I, I would like to touch <clears throat> on that crisis of belonging, but for the sake of this segment, I'm going to move on real quick. Um, Brian, I am going to send you a copy of Lost Connections. Oh. We're going to send you a copy of that. I think you'll find a lot of value. And let me say this. Real quick, Johan, this is a beautifully written book, and oh, you. Uh, you are a very talented writer. I'm, I'm, oh. I teach a writing class, and this is something that I'm going to be talking to students about in terms of create, uh, moving a narrative forward. And, and so, uh, bravo, you, you've, you've oh. created a beautiful book. I'm also uh, about halfway through uh, Chasing the Scream as well, so uh, I'm going to recommend that to folks as well. But, uh, Brian, I'm going to send you a copy of this. I'm also going to send you a copy of Ryan's and my book, Essential. It's an essay collection, and there's a, a technology chapter in here about using technology more deliberately. There's. Oh, we could talk about tech if you want, because it was implicit in his question. Yeah, I, yeah. I think so. Um, uh, we will be diving into tech. In fact, we, we've got a few questions about, yeah. about social okay. media. Well, I think up. we I think we can unpack Brian's question for another hour. <laughs> but but, but <laughs> yeah. I th- but I think the key takeaways for Brian are is, is get clear on what your true values values are, and and your short term uh, actions need to align with those those long term values, and make sure those values are are meaningful. And that's what creates a meaningful life. And the the only thing I'll add to that is when you strive to live a meaningful life happiness is this beautiful byproduct you don't have to chase happiness it will it will happen so start there brian and yeah we'll certainly cover more I think of it you're totally right that we have this flawed conception of happiness in this culture i think mm. it's flawed in several ways so the uh, greeks had two 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 words for happiness which have very different meanings so we had uh, hedonia which is like hedonism mm-hmm. right which is like partying that is the, the happiness you feel at a great sure. party right yeah. when you're dancing or the whatever. dopamine release exactly yeah. And then there's eudaimonia, which is the happiness you feel when you're doing something satisfying and meaningful, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And of course, you should have both in life. I'm in favor of partying. Sure. But, but eudaimonia is a much more important and much more sustainable form of happiness. No one can party all the time. We've all had friends who partied all the time and end up being, you know, kind of rattled and broken and miserable, right? Yeah. But eudaimonia is a really important form of happiness, pursuing meaning. Uh, and yeah. meaning can carry you through pain in a way that hedonism can't, mm-hmm. right? right. Um, so I think we have, I think there's another, um, sorry, I'm going to blow my nose, I apologize for how disgusting this is. Um, <laughs> the, um, 
the in terms of I have to be very careful whenever I have a, a slight sinus problem. And because I wrote a book about why we should legalize drugs, if I start rubbing my nose during interviews, it looks very, very suspicious. <laughs> but the, um, the, yeah, I think another key mistake we make about happiness is explained to me by a, a brilliant academic called Dr. Brett Ford based on her, her research. She was at Berkeley at the time. And they did this really interesting research. So they wanted to figure out if you try to make yourself happier, deliberately conscious, let's say one of your listeners sitting there going, I'm going to spend an hour a day trying to make myself happier. Would you actually become happier? And they studied this in four countries, the United States, Taiwan, Russia, and Japan. And what they found at first seems really weird. In the United States, if you try to make yourself happier, you do not become happier on average. Mm. But in the other countries, if you try to make yourself become happier, you do. It works. Mm. And they're like, why would that be? What's going on? So they did more. There was loads of teams. It wasn't just Brett Ford looking at this. Uh, and what they figured out was, and of course there are exceptions, but generally in the United States, if you try to make yourself happier, you do something for yourself. You buy something, you work harder, you try to get a promotion. You, you, it's a self, we have a, an individualistic conception of happiness. In the other countries, and of course there are exceptions there as well, but in the main, if you try to make yourself happier, you do something for someone else your friends, your family, your community, mm. right? So they have an instinctively collective idea of what it means to be happy. Contribution. Yeah. Exactly. And it turns out our, our idea of happiness don't work. It's materialism, yeah. It's materialism and it's self-focused. Yeah. It's ephemerality too. There, there, there's yeah. the, all of these sort of junk values. Yeah, it's the, you, you, you talking about the hedonism versus, what was the other word? Uh, eudaimonia? Eudaimonia, yeah. yeah, yeah. It, it, one is necessarily ephemeral it's it's the momentary pleasure it's the the you know i you talk about you know struggling with uh, weight gain in your early 20s i was the same way i weighed 80 pounds more than i weigh now really but and, i envy your cheekbones i just still look like a circle that a child drew so i'm very jealous <laughs> no so i um uh, you, you, because you get that you know, uh, what Joe Rogan calls mouth pleasure like you just get that moment of like oh this is, tastes so good right yeah. um, and and whenever he says that I always the only thing I picture is blowjobs though. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like don't argue against that Joe uh, <laughs> I'm totally the wrong direction let's move on to our lightning round Ryan alright <laughs> alright our lightning round now, this is where we answer questions with social media um, we just you know we've got days to prepare like short little tweetable answers is it um, lightning meaning you want me to answer quickly yes okay exactly Exactly. I'm not good at brevity, so you can ra you can fucking... ramble a little bit, but, uh, but, but but try to keep it short. All right, here we go. Our first uh, question is from April: Are the rates of depression really as high as reported, or is it overdiagnosed and used as a crutch? And I'm assuming she's talking about the Western world here. Um, what, what what do you think? I think the problem with that is it misunderstands what depression is. Mm -hmm. um, so most people think what I was told by my doctor is your depression is purely a problem in your brain. It's a purely a biological problem and needs purely a biological solution. In fact, all the scientific evidence, and this isn't some field science, fringe science, the World Health Organization, the leading medical body in the world has been trying to tell us this for years. In fact, depression has three kinds of cause. Um, biological causes, which are very real. Mm -hmm. Psychological causes, which are how you think about yourself. And social causes, the mm. way we live together. Mm. They are all real. They all play out to some degree in all forms of mental illness. So I think implicit in April's question, totally understandably, because this is what you're told as a culture, is the real depression is stuff that's purely biological. Mm -hmm. And then there's this kind of other stuff that might be social or psychological. Actually, 
A more sensible way of talking about it is just pain and distress, mm. right? Are there loads of people in this society with pain and distress? That's a great way of reframing it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and the other crucial reframing, I think, is once you understand this, that it's a response to things like unmet needs, yeah. right? Like loneliness or meaningless work. You begin to see depression very differently because the way I was taught to think about my depression was that it was a malfunction. Right? It's a, like a glitch in a computer program. It's just a wiring problem in your brain. In fact, in almost all cases, depression is a signal. Mm. It's telling you something. It's a symptom. Exactly. Yeah. You feel this way for reasons. Those reasons can be understood and together we can fix them. That's a very different reframing. So I, I think there's, I understand the point April's making, which is uh, there are many problems which are uh, promoted by the pharmaceutical industry and pathologized in order to drug people, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And I think implicit in what she's saying is, well, is this being overhyped in order to sell people drugs? Right now, right. drugs give some relief to some people. We're happy to talk about that if you want, although they're ultimately not solving the problem for most of us, as you can see, and there's loads of research on that. Yeah. Um, so I think there's an element of truth in what she's saying, which is we've been oversold biological solutions. Yeah. And part of the problem with giving these purely biological answers to this problem, telling people an entirely biological story is that it tells them, and this isn't the intention of the people saying it, but what it implicitly says to people is your pain doesn't mean anything, mm. right? It's like a, yeah, it's like a glitch in a computer program. I was only able to change my life, and I think we'll only be able to change this culture that's causing this depression when we explain to people your pain makes sense. You feel this way for reasons that are actually entirely understandable and for which there's very good scientific evidence. And to get, and the deepest solution is for us to fix these problems together. Yeah. yeah. I wasn't that fast, but. That was, um, no, that was, that was brief comparatively. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's the briefest I ever get, right? Look at the Tabitha's question. All right, Tabitha writes in, how would you recommend an introvert develop connections and friendships? I have no friends and that isn't an exaggeration. Unless, of course, you count my cat. Tabitha, of course your cat counts. <laughs> yeah, 25% of all millennials in the United States say they have no friends. 40% of Americans asked, do you feel like no one any longer knows you well? So that describes them. Mm. So Tabitha, you're not alone. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's kind of heartbreaking. And what I would argue, uh, and you shouldn't feel ashamed of that, you're very much not alone. Mm -hmm. I would argue for a structural solution. So wait, that almost sounds like an oxymoron. Like you're not alone in being alone, right? Yeah. It's it's like hmm. you are alone, but you're not alone. There's, well, there's something pissy there. You're not the there. problem, yeah. right? Right. The, you're, the, the, this culture is making lots of people feel this way. Yeah. And there are many solutions, but I would recommend one, and, and it's one of the kind of heroes in my book, Lost Connections, um, is is a doctor named Sam Everington. He's a general practitioner, just not ordinary family doctor in East London. And Sam had loads of patients coming to him who were terribly depressed and anxious, like Tabitha, uh, and very isolated. And um, Sam, like me, isn't opposed to chemical antidepressants. He thinks they have some value, but he could see, firstly, a lot of the people he was giving them to were remaining depressed. And secondly, they weren't solving the problem, right? Mm -hmm. For a lot of people, not for everyone. Sure. So one day, Sam decided to try this different approach that's now spreading all over Europe. Um, a woman came to see him who I got to know later named Lisa Cunningham. And Lisa, who's a wonderful person, Lisa had been shut away in her home with, you know, just completely isolated for seven years, crippling depression and anxiety. She actually had cats as well, so I mm. thought of Lisa when I was hearing Tabitha's message. And, and, and one day when she came to Sam's um, suite of doctor's offices, 
she was told, don't worry, I'll carry on giving you these drugs, but I'm also going to prescribe something else. There was an area behind the Swedish doctor's offices that was just like scrubland. They said to Lisa, okay, what I'd like you to do is come in twice a week, meet with a group of other depressed and anxious people on this scrubland, and figure out something you can do together. We don't want you to talk about how miserable you are. You can do that if you want, but find something meaningful to do together. This isn't a support group to talk about your pain. This is a group to do something good, right? Mm. The first time the group met, Lisa literally started vomiting with anxiety because she like Tabitha, mm. she'd been so cut off for so long. Mm. But the group starts talking and they're like, okay, what could we do? These are inner city East London people like me. They didn't know anything about gardening. They were like, okay, let's learn gardening. Mm. They took loads of books out of the library. They started watching YouTube clips. They started to get their fingers in the soil. They started to learn the rhythms of the seasons. There's a lot of evidence that exposure to the natural world is a really powerful antidepressant. But they started to do something even more important. They started to form a group. They started to form a tribe. They started to care about each other. The way Lisa put it to me, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. Mm, there, there was a study in Norway of a very similar program that found it was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants. I think for an obvious reason. It was dealing with some of the reasons why they felt so terrible in the first place. So what I would say to Tabitha is, look for, firstly, the rest of us should get help to Tabitha by fighting for a medical system that gives people support and help like this. Yes. So we should be giving her the message, help is on the way. Mm -hmm. But as that is happening, I would recommend looking at websites like Meetup and, and and going to, I think just going into a bar or something when you've been cut off for so long is just it's probably not horrible. But meetup.com, I, I totally agree. Like that's, in fact, that's what I kind of had written down for. It was like, look, you're uncomfortable to go uh, meet with other people. You have to go make yourself uncomfortable. And you can do that by going to meetup.com and, and joining groups and doing something that, that gets you out there making connections. Exactly. And I think that is a, a, a I appreciate how terribly painful that would be for Tabitha. Yeah. But a life of connection is a meaningful life. Absolutely. And it is worth taking that risk. And the, the most important thing is to remember that you are surrounded by people who feel the same way, who are waiting for someone to be the person yeah. who, who, who puts up the distress signal, right? Yeah. And I can tell you a story about that if you want, but it would be perhaps too long for a lightning round. <laughs> Let's save it for the maximal episode. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, we got a bunch more to talk about today. Before we get to our added value and before we get to our right here, right now segment, Ryan, we've got some really good questions here. How does our obsession with material possessions make us more anxious, depressed, and lonely? And what's the solution? Is social media the main contributor to our modern anxiety? We're also going to talk to Johan about, well, we're going to talk about gratitude. We're going to talk about the overuse and appropriate use of antidepressants. We're going to talk about the continued increase in suicide rates. We're going to talk about the role of food in depression. We're going to talk about how the drug crisis is really a crisis of meaning and belonging. And we're going to talk about how several countries have fixed their own drug crises and so much more. And if you want to hear all that, you can listen to this week's Maximal episode available exclusively on Patreon. That's right. You're currently listening to our weekly Minimal episode, but each week Ryan and I record an entirely different, much longer Maximal episode on The Minimalist's private podcast which gives us the private space we need to talk about topics we don't usually discuss in public. Plus, Patreon is the best way for us to fund this podcast and keep it 100% advertisement-free. When you subscribe to the Minimalist Private Podcast on Patreon, you'll also receive a personal link so that our maximal episodes play in your favorite podcast app. You can find all the details and all the good stuff over at theminimalists.com slash support. Ryan, what else you got for us this week? Being informed is more important than ever these days. And you at home, you listening to this, you can be more informed by listening to Johan Hari's book, Lost Connections. It's a great deep dive that I think you will enjoy. And also, I've got some voicemail tips 
and tricks from our listeners. Check them out, Josh. Hey, Joshua and Ryan. This is Joe Rossi. I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, anyway, I was calling in because uh, recently, about two weeks ago, I actually had an opportunity to watch your documentary after listening to it get mentioned on another podcast that I listened to. And I was really enamored with your message. Being very reluctant initially to jump head first into the minimalist lifestyle, I, I really took an inventory of what are the things that are drawing me back from living my life the way I wanted to. And really, on the top of all of my lists and, and in the back of my head, I realized it was my cell phone. Um, I don't think that uh, using cell phones are necessarily an, an inherently a problem. But for me, uh, as a dad of 10-month-old twins, anything that's a distraction from my kids is difficult because, as you can imagine, we rip through formula and diapers and all kinds of toys and, and fun things all the time. And if I look down even just for one second to check Instagram notification or an email from my boss or a text chain from my friends, something really amazing could be happening, like the first time that they walked, or kind of scary could be happening, like they're getting into something that they shouldn't. So I made a decision to actually switch to a dumb phone. I contacted my wireless provider and got my SIM card chip uh, replaced. And uh, now I just have a phone that only texts T9 like it's 2001 and makes phone calls. And it really has that small amount of minimalism really has made a big difference in my life. In fact, I was waiting in line and typically my nose would be buried in my phone. And I had an opportunity to talk to a guy that was behind me that had a a really neat classic truck that I saw pull into the parking lot and uh, ended up making a friend and and learning a little bit about uh, the mechanical parts of old trucks and stuff. So I wanted to call and say thank you because I really appreciate it. Hi, my name is Cecilia Duffy from Geneva, Ohio. I have a tip for minimizing and organizing your tax records. I am mostly paperless with my taxes. Make a folder on your computer with the tax year. Inside that folder, you'll make other files and folders that will hold all your needed receipts and either an Excel or Word document with a list of the tax items by date, name, and amount. For instance, my 2016 tax folder has the following. Number one, a 2016 donation receipts folder. I scan all receipts here and throw away the paper. Number two, 2016 medical receipts folder. Again, scan receipts into here and you can pitch them. Number three, 2016 donation list. This is a Word document with a list of all donations by date, place, and amount. At the end of the year, you just add up the amounts. For the rest of my files, I do the exact same thing. Number four is the 2016 medical list. Number five, 2016 charitable mileage. Number six, 2016 medical mileage. Every time you drive related to charity and medical, it takes just a minute to put the date, place, and mileage on the documents. It's much easier instead of trying to remember every place you've been all year long. Number seven, when W-2s and 1099s come in, I scan and place them into aptly named folders. Number eight, the last one is my property tax receipt. Taking a few minutes to scan and document throughout the year makes tax time much easier. As for receipts that you do not need for tax purposes, throw them away. When is the last time you needed to look at the water bill or the grocery receipt? Pitch them. On the off chance you actually need a receipt, you can call the water company and ask for it. 
All right, y'all. Thanks again to Johan Hari for joining us today. Check out both of his books, Lost Connections and Chasing the Scream. You can find those wherever you get books or at his website, johanhari.com. He also has a bunch of free resources over there. And for real, real quick, for right here, right now, here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalists. I teach a writing class. It's called How to Write Better. You can check it out at howtowritebetter.org. I've had hundreds of writing students improve their writing. Whether you're trying to write better tweets or business emails or blog posts or you want to write your first book or your next book, I can help you out with that. I think the rising tide lifts all boats. So I'm going to give you some, some tips, some tricks, some tactics, some habits that will help you improve your writing. Head on over to howtowritebetter.org for details. If you have a question, comment, or minimalism tip for our podcast, leave us a voicemail, 406-219-7839, or send a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. You can comment on this episode at youtube.com slash theminimalists. If you want our show notes in your inbox, sign up for our email list over at theminimalists.com. We'll never send you spam, but we will send you our simple Sunday emails as well. For our added value this week, let's listen to a song from St. John's new album. Here's Call Me After You Hear This. And if you leave here today with just one message, we hope it's this. Love people and use things. Because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. I don't want to split the dream up. Hey, can't nobody even.